0: Back after uh, Pope John Paul II died, a man named R- Roger Creightonhead, uh, who's kind of a collector of domain names, decided to register the domain named uh, Benedict 16com because he knew there was an opportunity maybe to make some money there, and in fact he was right, a very similar domain name, Pope 16com actually sold on eBay for $16,000. Uh, Rome didn't know they needed those until uh, they named, took on the name Benedict. Well, anyway, uh, Cranehead did not want money. He, he, he was a practicing Catholic. He had no interest in angering 1.1 billion Catholics around the world or his grandmother. So uh, he did want a few things, though. He was going to give the domain name to the church, happy to have them but he wanted a few things in return. First of all, he wanted one of those hats. <laughs> okay. The second of all, he wanted a free stay at the Vatican Hotel. And third, he wanted complete absolution, no questions asked, for the third week of March, 1987. <laughs> I don't know what happened the third week of March. I was thinking about that, and I realized, you know, all of us... Kind of have those weeks where we would like complete absolution. Kind of have them erased from our lives. This morning we're going to uh, continue in our series on the Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 51. We're going to be talking about what, what do we do when we blow it? How do we get forgiveness? How do we wrestle with the guilt and the shame that so often in our lives we feel so intensely. You know, it has struck me as kind of odd until I really thought about it. Um, you would think that Christians, people who are followers of Jesus, wrestle less with guilt and shame than the rest of the world, right? Because at the heart of our faith, we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And because of that, we have forgiveness, So you would think coming to Christ would do away with your guilt and shame. But I look at my own experience, and I listen to the experience of other people, and I discover that it's just the opposite. In my own life, I had far less guilt and shame before I was a follower of Jesus than after becoming a follower of Jesus. And and, and I've wondered why that's the case. But you begin to think about it, and I think you can realize why. Guilt guilt is the feeling we have when we we violate a standard, right? Well, before you come to Jesus, there really is no standard except your own standard. So if you do something that was on the wrong side of your standard, you can just move it a little bit. So you don't have to wrestle with guilt. But when you come to Jesus, suddenly there's this, this standard of right and wrong, and seldom do we measure up to it completely. So now we wrestle with guilt. And, and we wrestle with shame. You know, someone has said that guilt is the feeling you have when you do something bad. Shame is the feeling that you're a bad person. Um, and, and that's a good distinction. But I think the nuance of that distinction is that shame has to do with relationship and the perceived perception of someone else. In other words, you, 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 you feel shame when you think Other people perceive you as a failure or perceive you as bad. Well, before I was a believer, there was no one out there perceiving me that way. But then I come into this relationship with God. And guess what? Suddenly, I have the God of the universe watching my life. And my life is never as good as I think it should be or how he thinks it should be. So now I have this perception. I'm a failure in his eyes. And so the shame level goes way up. So now I wrestle with guilt and shame. And maybe you do too. I think guilt and shame are what I call iceberg issues in the Christian life. And what I mean by that is there's a little of it above the surface that we talk about, guilt and shame. But for the most part, we don't mention it in public that that's what we're feeling or that's what we're wrestling with. And I think there's a host of reasons for that but below the surface? Oh my gosh. I I mean when somebody really opens up you get exposed to what they're really feeling. And there's just bucket loads of guilt and bucket loads of shame. And I, I think guilt and shame and not understanding forgiveness is behind a lot of our depression and our anxiety and our struggle, and our frustration, and our anger. So this morning, I want us to uh, ask the question, what do we do when we blow it? How do we get forgiveness? How do we deal with the guilt and the shame in our lives? And I don't think there's a better place to go than Psalm 51. But I think we need some background and context for Psalm 51. Uh, we're told in the beginning of Psalm 51, kind of in the prelude or the title or the inscription, whatever you want to call it, that this psalm was written by David after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet about his, idolat- uh, his adultery with Bathsheba. So let's go back and remind ourselves of the story. Of David and Bathsheba. David, at this point in his life, is a bit older. He, um, he has let power corrupt him a bit. So he's thinking, you know, I'm not quite like other people, I'm a, I'm a little bit special. And it's the spring of the year. And his army with its general Joab is off fighting the Ammonites. It's curious that David isn't with him, but he's not. He's home at the palace. It's this warm spring night and he goes out on the palace veranda and he's looking down over the city of Jerusalem and he sees on the top of a house uh, a woman, an extraordinarily beautiful woman, bathing. You know, we think of bathing as the thing you do every day. In that culture, you didn't do it very often. And when you did, it was really for ceremonial reasons. She's up on her roof, which is probably enclosed, trying to be discreet, trying to get ceremonially clean. She's bathing. And and, and David is just captured with this woman's beauty. And he decides he has to have her. And he inquires, who is this? And he finds out that this is Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is married to a man named Uriah. Now Uriah is one of David's mighty men. There were 37 of them and these were the men who risked everything to protect David. They were his personal guard. They were more loyal to him than anybody else in the kingdom and they were his friends. But the fact that Bathsheba is Uriah's wife doesn't matter. He still has to have her and he sends to get her. And she complies because she's the king. He brings her in and when he's done... He sends her away. A bit later, she informs David that she's pregnant. Well, David's really good at solving problems, so he has a way to solve this problem. He sends a note to Joab and says, hey, I need Uriah. Uriah comes back, and David has this all planned. Uriah will come home, sleep with his wife. She's pregnant, but everybody believe, including Uriah, that it's his baby. The problem is Uriah is a soldier's soldier. And he will not enjoy the pleasures of home when all his uh, fellow soldiers are still in the midst of the battle. He won't go home and sleep with his wife. So David tries to get him drunk. (laughs) And still Uriah has too much integrity. He sleeps at the palace door. So David decides he has to implement plan B. He writes a note to Joab, gives it to Uriah. And the note tells Joab to take Uriah and put him where the fighting is the fiercest. And then to pull away so that Uriah would be killed. And that's exactly what happened. News comes back to David that Uriah is dead. And David, well, he's just magnanimous, right? There's this grieving widow Bathsheba who happens to be pregnant. But he's a good king, so he'll marry her. The child will be his in name. And everybody thinks, oh, that's cool, except God. At the end of Second Samuel chapter 11, uh, we get to this cryptic remark and it says, God was displeased with what David had done. So, God sends a man named Nathan, who is a prophet, to David. And Nathan tells David this little story about a rich man and a poor man. Now, the rich man has just herds, thousands of sheep. The poor man has one little lamb. The rich man is having guests come. And rather than slaughtering one of his sheep for the dinner, he decides to take this lamb of this poor man and slaughter it for his guests. Oh, and when David hears this story... He, he says to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. And Nathan, with one of the best sermon applications in the history of the world, says, you are the man. And Nathan, and I think God, asked David the question of why. As good as God has been to you, why? Why did you do this? And David confesses, I've sinned. I want us to take a moment and to think about David's sin and just how despicable he was. In fact, in your mind for yourself, I want you to think for a moment, what were the sin or sins that David was guilty of? See, we have a tendency, because David is our spiritual hero, right? We, he is the man after God's own heart. He, he is the one who understood spirituality so well. We think this is just a momentary lapse in his character. It's really not that bad. In fact, I had one older gentleman tell me, you know, it, it wasn't David who's the, the evil one here. It's Bathsheba. She seduced him. Baloney! That's not true. She is like the lamb. She's innocent. She had no power in this situation. She had, just had to do what David said. Uh, I, here's what I came up with. This is not an exhaustive list. You probably thought of other things I didn't. Uh, first of all, he abused his, this whole story of Bathsheba and David is not a story about sex and lust. It's a story about power. And, and that power has corrupted David. He sent the beginning, he sends people everywhere. At the end, he sends nobody anywhere after David, God sends Nathan to him. Right, than he is sent. So it's, it's all this play on power that power corrupts. And um, we always say, well, yeah, David committed adultery. Let, let's be really clear here. Here's what David did. He raped Bathsheba. Okay. He used his power to coerce her into sex, which she had no choice to deny. This, this is what we call rape. All right. We don't like to use that word because it taints our spiritual hero David. But he's guilty of rape. And not only is it rape, but it's rape of the wife of a man who was totally committed to him. I mean, this is despicable. He betrays this bond of loyalty and friendship that Uriah had given him. He's guilty of lying, deceit. He's guilty of murder by proxy. Just total hypocrisy. Absolutely despicable. You know, when we listen to the story in David and Bathsheba, I think there's kind of two things going on in us. For some of us, we relate really well. We can identify with David and how despicable he's been. In fact, that's where we're at sometimes. We're, we're feeling so bad, guilty and shameful about what we've done. We actually, actually believe there's no hope for us. There's no way God could love us. And, and no way anybody around us could love If they really knew what was inside our heart and what we've really done, no hope. That's not true. There's hope even for David. I mean, I doubt any of us are guilty... Uh, of that depth of sin. Maybe we are. Uh, either way, there's still hope. So that's part of us. Uh, maybe the other part of us, we're, we don't mean to be, but we're kind of smug. We think, boy, I would never do that. I would never rape, rape my, my friend's wife. Really? Probably not. But don't be too smug. I mean, think about, think about who David is. David is this man who has great spiritual depth. He is an incredible leader. He has unbelievable courage, uh, um, unbelievable faith in God. He's a leader's leader, a man's man. I mean, he, he is legitimately a hero. In fact, 3,000 years from now, none of, well, the world won't be talking about any of us in this room. Yet yeah, we're talking about David from 3,000 years ago. That's how great of a man he was. But he blew up his life. You see, every one of us is just one or two or three bad decisions from blowing up our lives. So if that can happen to David, don't be so smug to think it can't happen to you. So what do we do? What does David do? He says, I've sinned. This is David's response. Psalm 51. We've asked Jenny to come and read the psalm for us. Please listen.
1: Psalm 51. For the director of music, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You, who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise that. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord.
0: So the question, what do we do when we blow it? I'm going to suggest this morning that the psalm teaches us three things. One we do with our mind, one we do with our will, and one we do with our heart. All right? Here's the first thing. We have to admit with our minds that we've sinned. Look with uh, me back at verse 3 through 5. Uh, David writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sights, so that you are proved right when you speak, justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth." Sin from, from the time my mother conceived me. Uh, the first thing David said, does is he says, I, You know, I, I sinned. I blew it. I'm, I'm guilty. You're, you're right. In fact, he uses four different words in the psalm for sin rebellion, transgression, evil, sin. I, I mean, he, he's just, he's just, he admits it. it. It's really interesting to me when you go to the scriptures and you talk about forgiveness, you would think that the way you get forgiveness is by asking for forgiveness. But the the entry into forgiveness is not asking for forgiveness, but it is confession. Right? Confess your sins and God will... Why confession? Because the very start is to... Confession is simply agreeing with God about his perspective. Agreeing with him that you've sinned. That you've blown it. That's where forgiveness starts. So he recognizes it, and he takes responsibility. You know, you know our, our problem is when we sin, we typically come up with a rationalization. We typically come uh, up with an excuse. But in this psalm, David doesn't give any any excuse. My dad used to say when he was confronting us about something we did wrong, "I don't want to hear any if, ands or buts," right? Because we always had a reason why, we always had an excuse, we always had an explanation. And David here comes with no ifs, ands, or buts. He just says, I blew it. And he takes responsibility. That's the big thing about confession. Jim Baker, who was the head of PTL, uh, went to jail for embezzling about $160 million from people and having an affair. Uh, He wrote a book when he got out. And I like the title of his book. It was simply, I was wrong. How would you like that for the summary description of the first 50 years of your life? I was wrong. But that is where forgiveness starts. Admitting you've sinned recognize it takes responsibilities but but notice the second thing not only does he say i sin but i sinned against god if we go back to verse four he says against you you only have i sinned and done what is evil in your sight you say wait a second well how about uriah (laughs) how about bathsheba don't don't they play into this whole thing now understand, a part of forgiveness is getting reconciliation with those you've hurt. That's not what this psalm is about, and that's worthy of another discussion some other time. But here, the focus is on David's relationship with God. And I think what he's saying is, look, I, I understand that ultimately that what I have done has been against God himself. Uh, first of all, because he understands that God is the standard of right and wrong. I was uh, flipping through channels and and got to that kid's teenage soap uh, 90210 and a uh, girl there was trying to decide whether or not she should sleep with her boyfriend. So what she does is she goes to her priest and asks her priest what she should do. And the priest gives the great media answer, right? Follow your heart. And I wanted to jump out of my chair What? Follow your heart. Don't you know your heart can be hateful? Don't you know your heart can be selfish? Don't you know your heart can be cruel? Don't you know your heart can be black? Follow your heart. That's the problem. Too many people are following their hearts. You know, Jiminy Cricket says, uh, let your conscience be your guide. Serial murders have been doing that for years. Our hearts and our consciences aren't the measure of sin. God is. And David is saying, look, I I realize I broke your standard, and that's the issue. But I think there's also something deeper here when he says, I sinned against you and you only. He's coming to the realization that in his sin, what it was at its very core was a rejection of God, a rejection of his love. In a sense, he was saying to God, you know, God, you're just not good enough. God, you really don't have my best interests in mind. God, you're not really the one I can trust to make me happy and fulfilled. I need Bathsheba. She'll do it. But God, you you just can't. There is a point where in our wrestling with sin and our confession, we have to face the fact that when we sin, we are rejecting God and his love. And in rejecting him, we're breaking his heart. Because when we understand that, the, the emotion begins to hit us of what we've done. What we've done. So he says, I sinned, I sinned against God, and it is a reflection of my heart. It's interesting. If we look at verse 5, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I go, what's what's he getting at? I mean, he's just basically bad. And in a sense, what David is saying, look, like all of us, he suffers from a curvature of the soul. There's something. uh, Sin is not just a matter of doing bad things. Sin is a reflection of a broken and very flawed character. And we don't like that because what we want to do is we want to push sin to simply the external behaviors of our lives. Because if we can do that, if we can say, well, that was just my behavior. That was out of character for me. That's not who I really am. That's not what I would normally do. Give me another chance and I won't do it again. Because then it distances us. Right? And so what... Most of us do, most of the time, we try to manage the behaviors of sin. And we think if we can manage the behaviors of the sin, then that's all it takes. But sin doesn't simply reside in our behaviors, it's just manifested there. Sin resides in our hearts. And if sin resides in our hearts, then it's not simply a matter of sin managing. It becomes an issue of heart transformation. And we'll see this in the moment. That's what David wants, because he realizes, I mean, I raped raped Bathsheba. I murdered Uriah because I'm messed up in so many ways at such deep levels. I'm broken. You know, you look at this first step, admit with your mind that you've sinned, I was thinking about this in the context of church and I I realized we have to work as a church, as a community of God's people, really hard at developing a culture of authenticity. Because what we do, and I don't think it's intentional, it's, it's just by default, we want to have other people think highly of us. So we delude ourselves about our sin and, and we delude others about our sin and, and we kind of present ourselves better than we are that we have it far more together. And, and that gets magnified in the church, right? Because the church is this community with expectations, standards that we're to live up to. So we kind of, not intentionally, but we end up playing this game where we're not honest. And, and from one perspective, that's really bizarre because if you think about it, What is the one thing that unifies us? The one thing that unifies us is that we're sinners saved by grace. It's not the color of our skin. It's not our educational background. It's not where we're born. It's not our economic status. That's not the thing that makes us one body. What makes us one body is that we're screwed up, broken, messed up people who happen to have found a savior and get to experience his grace. So we don't need to pretend. Because God is not very impressed with our righteousness because we don't have any. I was listening to a a sociologist this week at a conference and he's done his work on a group of people called the, the Duns. You've heard of the nuns. Those are people who have no religious affiliation. The Duns are people who were really committed to church and then decided to opt out. And it wasn't that they had one bad experience with a church. It's that church became a bad experience, and they decided they'd had. And he said there's about 30 million people in our culture who who are categorized as duns." And he was talking about why they make that decision. And he gave a list, but the top two things on his list were interesting to me. The first one was a lack of authenticity. The church couldn't be a place where people are real. And the second was a lack of community. And as I thought about it, I realized that those two things are linked, right? Because community is not built on your strengths. Community is built on your vulnerabilities, on your weaknesses. It's when you open up and you let people in and you become honest about yourself that there's a depth of relationship built. I... I, (laughs) I think the church should learn something from AA. I think when we come in in the morning, we we should say, hi, my name's Nick. I'm a sinner. (laughs) Really. Because that's the truth. I was reading about a young man who had come to faith and he kind of came to faith out of a pretty uh, uh, um, wild background, okay? Uh, Drinking and Parousing. And his life was really transformed, really changed, really turned upside down, highly committed to Jesus, highly committed to the church, highly committed to, to living out his faith. And he was in this conversation with his pastor, and his pastor was talking to him about the change that occurred. And uh, the young man said, he said, you know, becoming a Christian has been great, but I got to tell you, you want to know what I miss the most? So what I miss the most is the bar. He said, not not the drinking and carousing. No, I miss the bar. I I miss being able to go to to a place where I could just hang out, be myself with my friends, and be honest and not pretend. And I thought, really, Can't, can't we as a church be better than the local bar? I like what Philip Yancey writes. He says, throughout the Bible, God shows a marked preference for real people over good people. <laughs> in Jesus' own words, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So the first step with our minds, we admit we have sinned. The second step is with our wills, we have to seek Look with me uh, at verses 7 through 9. Uh, David writes, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and, and blot out all my iniquity. Uh, in the psalm, David uses four words for sin to describe sin. He uses 19 words to describe forgiveness. A- a- and every one of those words I- is something that God does or is a result of what God does. And implicitly, David, is, he knows that forgiveness can't come simply from himself. He cannot render himself forgiven. Forgiveness has to come from outside him. Uh, I like what uh, Marganita Lasky said. Marganita Lasky was a humanist and atheist, a prolific writer. Uh, uh was on a bunch of talk shows on television. But in 1988, before she died, she made this statement. And it, it's a really interesting statement. She says, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. And we typically think, oh, we get forgiveness from the people we've wronged. And, and, and that's part of the experience of forgiveness. But what do we do when we have all this junk in our lives where there's not a specific person we've wronged that's just out there? How do we get forgiveness for that? You see, there has to be someone outside that can render us forgiven. And you see where, where David's going here. He says, I understand ultimately it's God that I sinned against. So ultimately it's he who has to forgive. But it raises this question. How is it that God can forgive David? I mean, this is rape, murder, betrayal. I, how is it that God can render David Forgiven. I I mean, God just can't say, oh, David, you're forgiven. Because for him to do that would simply violate his holiness and justice. There's got to be more to it than that. So how does this happen? And I don't think David understands completely. I mean, he lives in this sacrificial system. He knows that they have to offer lambs and bulls, and somehow those become an atonement or substitution. But but he, he knows that falls short. He knows that just must be... Pointing to something else, but he doesn't totally understand it. But he hints at it. If we go back, um, I think it's verse 7. Not not yet. There we go. Thank you. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter with snow. Hyssop was this little plant that had white flowers, and they would gather it in bunches, and they would use a bunch of hyssop to dip into the bucket of the, the blood of the lamb that they've sacrificed and then put it over their do- doorpost as a mark that this house was under the atonement, under the sacrifice, under the substitution of the blood. And that's this pointer. You see, David doesn't understand completely how he's rendered forgiven, but we do. Because ultimately, our forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ becomes our substitute. He becomes sin for us that we might become His righteousness. Now I want us to look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul writes, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so he takes our place and pays our penalty and pays the price of our sin so that we can be rendered forgiven. But I want you to take this home and make it live for you this morning. So... Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about your own sin. I want you to be able to say to yourself, God made him who had no sin to be a rapist for me so that I might become the righteous." God made him who had no sin to be an adulterer for me so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be a pornographer for me so that I might be Become the righteous. God made him to who had no sin to be a, a cheater for me so that in him I might become the righteous of so God made him who had no sin to be, and you fill in the blank, so that in him you might become. So with his mind, he admits that he sinned. With his will, he seeks God's forgiveness. And then the third step is with your heart, you have to accept God's grace. And that actually means two things, okay? It it means, first of all, to have a contrite and broken heart. Um, Look at, at... Verses seventeen through nineteen with me. Sixteen through seventeen, sorry. David writes, You do not delight in sacrifice. Or I'd bring it, you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. David knows those are, are just pointers to something far more important. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken contract, heart, oh God, will you you will not despise. Now notice what David is saying here, that he's saying you you don't get forgiveness through religious ritual. You you don't get forgiveness by going to confession or or doing penance. You don't get forgiveness by coming to church. You don't get forgiveness by making a donation. You, You don't get forgiveness by doing good service in the community. You don't get forgiveness by being a good person. That's just what's expected. None of those render you forgiven. David says, no, it takes a contrite and broken heart. Well, what's a contrite and broken heart? The word for broken here is the same word that he used up above as crushed. And he's simply saying, you know what it takes? It takes a heart that's been totally demolished, devastated by sin. It's that moment when you realize the depth of what you've done how stupid you've been. And it crushes you. And because it crushes you, you give up. And you say, I, I, can't, I can't fix this. Because the moment you say, I can't fix this, God's going to show up. Because he can. You know, they teach you... Uh, if you want to rescue a drowning person you don't want to get close to them until they given up until they're going under until they you know go below because if they're still struggling if they still think they can take care of themselves if they think they can save themselves if they're still Struggling, the moment you get close to them, you know what they'll do? They'll just climb on top of you and push you under. And then you'll both go down. So you wait until they're exhausted. You wait until they don't have any more ability to struggle. And then you come in and put your arm around them and bring them to safety. And that's what's happening here. David has hit the bottom. Throws himself on the mercy of God. So not only does that take a broken and contrite heart, but I think it also takes a trust in God's love. And we see this back at the very beginning of the psalm. This is where David starts the psalm in verses 1 and 2. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And the word there for love is that word that Larry talked about last week. We've mentioned before, it's the word hesed. It's covenant love. It's loyal love. It's unconditional love. It's the love that says, you know what, I'm committed to you. No matter what you've done, I'm there. And then he, he, he plays it out. Let me help you understand. According to your great compassion. And this word for compassion I think Larry talked about is the word for a woman's womb. And it, 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 it helps you picture God's feeling. If you've had kids, some of you haven't had kids. But if you've had a kid, you know what this is like. It's when you're in the room and the birth has just taken place. And that little child... That is, your child is placed into your hands, and and you look at that little face and you have this unbelievable uh, uh, sense of emotion. How you feel towards that little child at that moment is how God feels towards us. See, the the question is, is do we believe that? God shows his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't love you because you're good. He loves you despite that you're bad. He loves you because you're his. And the question is, do we? Will Campbell, um, a black minister who was involved in the civil rights uh, movement quite a bit, wrote a book, an autobiography called Brother to a Dragonfly. And and in the book, he's having a conversation with a friend of his, P.D. East, who who was always arguing with him about the viability and reality of Christianity. And they had this little exchanged uh, P.D. He says to him, just tell me what this Jesus cat is all about. I'm not too bright, but maybe I can get the hang of it. If you could tell me what the hell the Christian faith is about, I wouldn't make a fool out of myself when I'm talking about it. Keep it simple. In 10 words or less, what's the Christian message? Let me have it, 10 words. Campbell thought hard for several minutes, and then he said, We're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. That's the gospel, and that's why we can be forgiven. And our guilt and our shame can be taken away. With our minds, we admit we sin, with our wills, we seek His forgiveness, and with our hearts, We throw ourselves on the mercy and the grace of God. Can I get you to stand? I want to close the sermon. We're going to take communion in just a few moments uh, as part of the service. Um, But I'd like to to end this part with uh, uh, responsive reading. uh, Courier. So I'll read a statement and you'll, you'll respond with Lord have mercy or whatever comes up. You raise the dead to life in the spirit, Lord, have mercy. mercy. You bring pardon and peace to the broken in heart, Christ, Christ, have mercy. You make one by your spirit, the torn and the divided, Lord, have mercy. May your loving mercy come to me, O Lord, and your salvation according to your word. Christ, have mercy. Your word is a lantern to my feet and a light to my path. Lord, have mercy. O let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Lord, have mercy. God, be gracious to us and bless us and make your face shine upon us. Lord, have mercy. This is the good news of the gospel. And it is for you and for all. Forgiveness, whatever you have done, whatever you have failed to do, whoever you are, whoever you wish you were but are not, you are accepted, you are welcome. You are washed clean. You are raised up. You are forgiven. You are set free. In the love of Jesus Christ, you are loved forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Jesus Christ. His grace and his love. May we walk in that and experience in the depths of our heart your forgiveness and your grace. Amen. I'm going to ask you to sit and prepare your hearts to participate in the Lord's Supper. When we do the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of Christ's sacrifice for us. We take the bread that represents his body. We dip it into the cup that represents His blood and then we eat it and that shows that we've partaken of what Christ has done. Prepare your hearts and when you're ready you can make your way to one of the stations and partake in the gift given to us through Christ.